I think the blinders come from the very human experience of being fearful. We are afraid of death. We're afraid of not being loved. We're afraid that we're not going to be successful, that we're not going to achieve something. There's this afraid of not being enough. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Rol. Today's guest on the show is Dr. Jessica Kriegel. I discovered Jessica's work fortuitously during a random Google search, and I'm, I'm so glad I did because her book, Unfairly Labeled, How Your Workplace Can Benefit From Ditching Generational Stereotypes, blew me away. It was a complete eye-opener for me, and I invited her to come on the show to share her message with our audience here. Jessica is a researcher and expert in generational dynamics. Her insights and solutions offer a roadmap for how you can most effectively transform your culture to attract, retain, and engage all generations in the workplace. Her book, Unfairly Labeled, challenges the very concept of generational differences as an unfair generalization and offers a roadmap to intergenerational understanding. She also speaks on the topic of generational dynamics nationally and acts as an advisor and strategist in matters of cultural alignment across all generations. If you'd like to follow Jessica's work, you can sign up for her mailing list at jessicakriegel.com. Her last name is spelled K-R-I-E-G-E-L. In the episode, Jessica and I talk about how being the youngest person in the room led Jessica to study generational differences, why older generations tend to complain so much about millennials, why the established literature on generational differences is wrong, how the public is so eager to buy into these generational stereotypes, a technique that Jessica uses for showing how inappropriate generational stereotypes can be how stereotypes about different generations have very real consequences and lead to poor leadership decisions, what companies can do to foster better intergenerational relations, the one personality trait that Jessica considers a personal failure, and finally, why it's so difficult to project our true selves into the world and what we can do about it. Before I play the interview, my new book, which is called Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategies You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work and Life, is now available for pre-order. It will be coming out very, very soon. If you pre-order the book, you will get digital access to read on your favorite device within seven days of your pre-order. That means you can start reading it months before the book is released to the public. You'll also get a ton of pre-order bonuses that are worth at least 10 times the cost of the book. You can find all of that at rocketsciencebook.com. I've been ecstatic about the early reviews of the book. The book was named a must-read by Susan Cain, endlessly fascinating by Daniel Pink, and bursting with practical insights by Adam Grant. And I've been so pleased and humbled with the early praise I received about the book from many, many of you as well who already pre-ordered it and downloaded the digital version on your devices to read it ahead of time. So once again, you can find the book at rocketsciencebook.com. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jessica Kriegel. And thank you as always for listening. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. 
I loved your book, Unfairly Labeled, and I'm really excited to speak with you and share your ideas with our audience here. I'd love to begin with a little bit of background. I'm always interested in hearing how people found the path that they ended up taking. How did you become interested in studying generational differences? I started, as I think most people start, any passion that they have, it it was affecting me personally. I have historically been one of the youngest people in every environment that I was in. So I was the youngest person at my first job out of my MBA. I was the youngest person in my MBA. I was the youngest person in my doctoral program. I've always been the youngest. And so I've very frequently experienced that, oh, you're the millennial kind of thing (laughs) that people will just diminish what I'm saying, think that I don't have very much credibility. They'll discount any contributions that I make. And they'll say, I remember one time I had a performance review and my manager said, you just need to bake a little bit longer. And I didn't know what that means because it doesn't mean anything, but I knew that it was insulting and it was that feeling that got me interested. And so when I was deciding what I had to write my dissertation on, they said, no matter what, you have to pick something that you're very interested in because you're going to be reading and writing about this for the next two years. So at the time, that was what I was interested in. Yeah. So you ended up picking a very personal topic to you. Millennials seem to get it worse than any other generation. People call them spoiled, lazy, disloyal. Entitled. Yeah, entitled, exactly. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that it's the youngest generation that always gets it the worst. So it's just their turn. And Generation Z will get it worse than the millennials did when they're in the workforce and start to disrupt things with their own style. And that's unfortunate. You know, there is a quote in my book that is attributed to Socrates that 2,500 years ago, he said something along the lines of children today value chatter in the place of hard work and basically complaining about younger people but using the same exact complaints that we have about millennials today. So this isn't new. It's just part of the human condition that we put down people who are next in line. And that's really unfortunate. And that's what the book is trying to accomplish is to get us to stop doing that, to break the cycle. Right. So it's the kids these days complaints, except with the millennial label attached to it. Well, now we've got these juicy labels, right? Now that we have the generations, thanks to Neil Howe and William Strauss, who invented the term millennial and really wrote the first book on generations that anyone actually read, people have become completely entranced with this generational thing. And the problem is that a lot of the differences that we may be noticing are really more about life stage than about generation. And so we're attributing it to the wrong thing, which is creating even more divisiveness than there already needs to be. Let's go back to your... PhD. So what was your research topic? It was differences in learning styles as it pertains to the different generations in a workplace, looking at management training. Okay. And when you were doing your PhD, you encountered some contradictions in the literature about generational differences. Can you tell us about them? Yeah. So before you even do your own research, when you're doing a dissertation, you have to write what's called a literature review. And the literature review is where you read everything that's been done in your field of research and you summarize it, you synthesize the themes. And so I was trying to synthesize the themes of all the research and generational differences. And I really struggled because I would find that one book would say one thing and then the other book would say the exact opposite. And that happened so often that synthesizing didn't really feel possible because of all of the contradictions and not only contradictions, but there were also a whole host of conclusions that these authors were making and they had no evidence, no data, no research to back up what they were saying. So I couldn't tell if what they were saying was conjecture, was 
anecdotal, was just an opinion. And when you're writing a dissertation, you can't just take someone's word for it. You have to source your data. And so that was where I really started to realize how much of this industry is a bed of lies. It's just people making assumptions, making conclusions based on anecdotal information, making it up, really. We're all making it up. This whole field is made up because it's so entrancing to the public. And because the media wants clicks, they facilitate these kind of widespread stereotypes that most of the time are not true. And people buy into it. They're interested in reading in it. And so these authors who are writing a bunch of nonsense get a lot of press and they get hired as consultants at big companies who are hoping that they have a silver bullet answer for how to attract and engage and retain the next generation of talent. But it's like the emperor has no clothes. A lot of it is just not real. Let's delve into a little bit more about why this is so entrancing to the public. You actually have a chapter in your book about this, about why we stereotype. Can you share with us the the basic argument? Why do people have a tendency to want to put other people into these categories or boxes? Yeah. And I would change the question to it's not want to put people into categories necessarily. It's that we automatically put people into categories. Right. Simply put, it's unconscious bias, which is really popular these days, you know, especially in HR training world. That's something that a lot of people are talking about, especially in the corporate world. The unconscious bias is the level of of consciousness that we're not aware of that allows us to make decisions quickly and process information. It's a very necessary part of our being. It's a part that has allowed us to survive. So it's the part that when we the corner of our eye notices something that might be flying towards us, we duck without consciously having to decide, oh, I might get hit with this thing. I should probably bend down so my head doesn't get hit and then doing it. That's not a conscious process. It's unconscious. And it saves us from danger, right? When we were our ancestors, tigers seemed scary. So we ran away and that saved us. These days, we don't have tigers necessarily chasing us all the time, but our brain is still trying to create patterns and put people into boxes according to those patterns in a in a way to keep ourselves safe to identify who can we trust and who can't we trust and unfortunately because we're unconscious about it this is totally happening without our awareness and we end up putting people into boxes that maybe consciously we wouldn't put them in those boxes, but unconsciously it just feels simpler. And so what that means is that people who look like us feel a little bit easier to get along with, a little bit safer to open up to. And so that's where we start to run into issues. And so that's why usually your best friend is someone around your age. You know, usually your best friend isn't someone who's 30 or 40 years older than you because you just have this sense that like, oh, we're, we're more similar. And so we're going to get along more. That's why we stereotype. It's an unconscious process. And what we have to do is kind of transcend that and be really conscious about how we might be putting people into these separate categories and what that might mean for the divisive nature of how we're pushing people away totally unnecessarily. So some of these shortcuts that were efficient from a survival perspective end up driving unconscious bias in the modern world. What you were just saying also reminded me of a series of experiments that Henri Tuchfeld had conducted. Uh, He was a Polish Jew who survived World War II And he wanted to study what drives discrimination and and prejudice. And he ran a series of famous experiments where he asked people what abstract painting they prefer. It was one of the questions that they were asked. And people were put into these teams 
with the with the members of the team being the same people that expressed a preference for the for the same painting and it was scary how quickly the members of each group developed loyalty towards the members of that group even though the the basis for the distinction was so arbitrary it was just you know do you like this abstract painting over the other yet the people in each group were very quick to reward the members of the same group and punish the members of the other group so this us versus them dynamic developed extremely quickly based on these arbitrary distinctions yeah, absolutely. I write about Henry Tashfell in the book and his theory of in-group, out-group dynamics. What we do that starting in high school with, you know, we've got the theater geeks, you've got the computer nerds, and you've got the sports jocks. And we decide, oh, because you like theater too, you are good. And because you like sports and I don't, you are bad. And now we're going to separate ourselves into these cliques. We're going to put down the other people. And it's something that is, it's a natural tendency. And it's really sad because it's a way to divide. And we really stop seeing the humanity in each other. And we have to overcome that because we, we're used to doing that because it helps our self-esteem, the ego. When we belong to a group, then we feel better if we put that group up and put the other group down. If you notice when it pertains to generations, no one ever wants to be a different generation. I've never met a baby boomer who said they wished they were a millennial. And I've never met a millennial who wished they were a baby boomer because it's about my group is better than your group. And that makes me feel better about myself because I belong here and you are over there and you're not as good as me. You've got a great exercise that shows how inappropriate these generational stereotypes can be. Could you please share that with the audience? Whenever I start a keynote, no matter how big or large or small the size of the audience is, I start by asking people to identify what it is they know about each generation. And so we'll walk through them. You know, baby boomers, typically we hear that they're hardworking and they're loyal to their employer and they're independent. Generation X is cynical and entrepreneurial. And then millennials are spoiled and tech savvy and entitled, whatever else they come up with. And then I, I sometimes write down what people are saying into these different categories. And then I ask the audience to imagine if I were to replace the labels of generation, replace the word baby boomer with white people and replace generation X with black people, replace millennial with Hispanics. And then I say, now imagine if this exercise had started with a different question, the question of, OK, there are uh, four races in the workplace. Now, I'd like you to tell me what it is you know about each race. I guarantee that the audience would have been much less comfortable saying, oh, well, the blacks are hardworking and loyal to their employers and independent and the Hispanics are tech savvy and entitled and spoiled or whatever adjectives they threw out about each generation. And the reason is because we have had so many conversations societally about how inappropriate it is to judge people based on race. We've had so many conversations about racism and so many conversations about gender, for example. Likewise, it would have been an equally uncomfortable conversation if I had asked people to say, what's it like to work with women? Anyone? Women? You know? And so when I parallel the labeling that we do and the classification that we give to different groups of people to race or gender, they start to see how inappropriate it is. It doesn't mean that we don't do it, right? People are still racist. People are still sexist. And they're still maybe having that unconscious bias about different folks that is problematic, 
but we at least know that it's not okay to do out loud. And that's the problem that this generational age, I will say, this fascination that we have with the different generations has, is that we still talk about it like it's totally normal. We still talk about it. I was in a meeting literally yesterday where someone, we were doing a talent review and someone was saying, oh, I have this one employee who didn't get all fives on all of the competencies. And so they literally cried in my office. And the leaders were talking about how surprising it was that the person cried about that. And the leader said, let me guess, they were a millennial. Hmm. And the leader said, no, actually, they weren't a millennial. And immediately he felt silly for making the assumption that he was a millennial. And then later on, it turns out that that person has recently been going through really difficult time with their family. A lot of personal stuff was coming up. And so it's like we're not seeing each other's humanity. We're simply seeing this label and it's making it really easy for us to dislike each other and put each other down, which is, you know, like I said, really sad. Yeah, and and the millennial bashing has, I think, become a sort of favorite activity, not just at the corporate setting, but I'm also seeing this at the university level as well. The conversation is always centered around what, how do we teach millennials, given their obsession with technology and so many stereotypes being thrown around, many of them many of them wildly inaccurate. People will take the leap that because millennials use technology more, that that means that they prefer to learn online or do everything online. And that there is no necessarily correlation between the amount of technology that people are using in their personal life and the amount of technology that they prefer to learn with or work with. Or And that was actually exactly what my dissertation study was was on learning one piece of it was learning technology preferences and there were zero differences in learning technology preferences across the generations at this particular organization I studied even though a lot of people assume that there would be and we end up then of course designing say a learning strategy that is wildly out of sync with the actual preference of of the students in the classroom for example so what might be some of the other practical consequences of unfairly labeling generations. You already began to touch on this, but I want to dive a little bit little bit deeper. And you personally bore the brunt of this, of course, as well, as you mentioned earlier, when I think it was your first job when your boss told you that you need to bake more often, if I remember correctly. So what are some of the, the practical consequences of these generational labels? Well, We start making really bad business decisions, and there are a whole host of different bad business decisions that can be made. So simplest level, it's the way that we treat our employees, right? We have some baby boomers on our team. We have some millennials on our team. We read somewhere that five tips for managing millennials told me that millennials like a lot of feedback and that they want to be given a lot of volunteer time and they want X and Y and Z. So then I decide that's how I'm going to lead these people. But I'm not going to lead the baby boomers that way because I didn't read anywhere that baby boomers like that. And because we're keeping each other separate with these stereotypes, we're not actually doing the difficult work of getting to know each individual because the ideal leadership style, as we figured out over the years, is whatever works for the person that we're leading. You know, the golden rule of treat others the way you would want to be treated is out. And now we've graduated to the platinum rule, which is do unto others the way they want done unto them. So as a leader, our job is to adjust our style to communicate in different ways that resonate with the person that we're leading in order to get the best out of them. And instead, A lot of leaders are just saying, oh, I've got a bunch of millennials on my team, so this is how I'm going to do it because this is what I know about millennials, assuming that all 80 million of them are the same and and not 
honoring the diversity and the complexity of human behavior that lies within each person. That's just a, a management example. But I mean, the hiring that we do, I've worked with a team at an organization once that wanted to infuse more innovation in their culture. And so their strategy involved hiring a bunch of millennials, wow. assuming that millennials were going to be more innovative than older people, which is a really unfair assumption because a lot of older people have a lot of intuitive innovation in their bones that you're missing out on because you're assuming that young people just naturally have it. Beyond hiring and management, there's even, you know, uh, from a marketing perspective, I think that that is one of the biggest mistakes that we make where people market to millennials, assuming that if we say, oh, this is, you know, a product for millennials, that that's somehow going to boost sales amongst that demographic. But Whole Foods was a really good example of where that went horribly wrong. They have, um, you know, Whole Foods is this organic grocery store that has this new store concept. It's not new anymore, but five, six years ago, they came out with this store called 365. And the idea was that that store was going to be cleaner lines. It was going to be more modern. It was going to have less clutter. It was going to be cheaper, more technology at the checkout. And they came out with their press release about the store saying it was a store for millennials. And immediately there was a whole bunch of backlash online from all of these baby boomers who went on Facebook and said, excuse me, why is that a store for millennials? You think we like cluttered, expensive stores? So by saying we are for millennials, they were also saying, and we're not for any of you other generations. So marketing is another place where I think people go terribly wrong. Even if they don't say they're for millennials, some marketing is really obviously geared towards millennials in a stereotypical way that can also be really off-putting. So all in all, it's just a terrible lens through which to make business decisions. And I think this is true outside of the the generational difference context as well. Whenever you label a category of, of people you end up amplifying this us versus them dynamic, right? If you even like, I cringe when I hear people say homeless people or criminals or fans of this soccer team, simply simply putting those labels on people ends up amplifying the differences and also robbing their humanity away. So what can, in the workplace, what can companies do to, aside from ditching labels, what can they do to improve camaraderie between intergenerational workers? Well, a lot of organizations have employee resource groups where different employees with different backgrounds or different interests might get together and then collaborate cross-organizationally. I think that's great. However, I don't recommend that people have generationally based resource groups like the Millennial Employee Resource Group. Mm. Many organizations that I've worked with have started just moving to intergenerational employee resource groups, which is about working together across generations. You know, the first step to anything is overcoming anything is awareness. And so there has to be a conversation that's had about how those labels are counterproductive and we need to stop using them. That has to start at the top. I've worked with a lot of organizations where leaders, the CEOs, the senior vice presidents will use language, even if they're not saying millennial, they'll say things like kids. We hire a lot of kids these days, referring to college graduates who are now joining the team. And that is really reductionist way of talking about millennials because they're not kids. They're adults with a job that are now college graduates and trying to make an impact and do meaningful work. And being called kids by their leader makes them feel less valued. So being really careful about language, especially the language that comes from the top. And then 
removing any kind of, you know, doing sometimes a collateral audit in which you look at what ways in which are we currently exasperating this us versus them dynamic, even in, for example, training programs where, you know, I worked with one organization that had a training program called Managing Millennials. And really, it wasn't about managing millennials. It was about managing new college graduates that have not worked in a corporate environment before. And so that is valuable training in and of itself. But the label was divisive because sometimes the people actually giving the training were also millennials, but they were millennials with 15 years experience in the corporate world. So being thoughtful about the way that we use language in various collateral that we have within the organization, any organization that isn't doing some kind of survey or engagement analysis, organizational analysis or assessment really needs to start doing that because this is where we hear from the voice of the people directly, understanding what your particular employee population is saying about the organization and the barriers to being productive and what might be transformative in terms of the culture. That's the best way to get that information, not reading whatever you can find on Inc. and Forbes and these other places. And, uh, you know, just having a conversation about about building trust and Thoughtfully building trust in corporations is very difficult because we're inherently within a structure that does not allow for much trust because it's it's a structure built on, you know, there's greed, there's influence, there's money, there's power involved. And when we're building trust, we want to get past all that and see a person at their core and get vulnerable and really understand what makes that person tick. And sometimes doing that can feel a little bit too risky in a corporate environment. And so it's finding the balance between being able to do that so that there's a certain level of trust and understanding, but also being appropriate in the workplace. I'd love to switch gears a little bit now and and talk to you about your your failures since that's the topic of the podcast. What is looking back on your life? What's one of the most valuable failures you've had and and what makes it valuable? I don't necessarily want to point to one particular moment where I failed at something as much as I want to reflect on the just massive and pervasive and unending lack of self-awareness that I've had throughout my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it has to do with the ego, right? And and how caught up, how easy it is to get caught up in the mind. And it wasn't until recently when I had a series of transformative experiences that were really transformative and that they were suffering, you know, losses and really just terrible situations that made me do some more introspection and more work on myself to really go in and see what is it that makes me tick? Who am I asking that, you know, age old question? Who am I? that I started to realize how blind I was to who I actually was my entire life. And so it's almost like this constant failure to have a level of self-awareness where I could really show up in the world in a way that makes an impact or makes a difference. And being completely blind to it. I've had a million conversations about emotional intelligence. I've done trainings on self-awareness. I've been convinced that I was one of those people that really understood who I was and how I was showing up in the world. And 
it wasn't until I really went through some difficult times that I realized, oh, wow, no, I was completely wrong. I had no idea how I was showing up in the world. I had a complete lack of self-awareness. I realized that I was not projecting myself the way that I thought I was and that a lot of what I was doing was just acting in hopes of showing up as something that would be accepted or someone that would get hired or someone that would be loved, you know, in this world. And, and I really had no idea that that was happening. So it's almost through suffering that I was able to go a little bit deeper and realize how blind I've been this whole time. That would probably be my biggest failure. If someone's listening to this and thinking, you know, how do I know whether I'm wearing blinders? Because what you said is so true. And I, I've also spent a lot of my life, big stages of my life, wearing blinders. And the problem is it's so hard to know that you're wearing blinders when you're actually wearing them. <laughs> it's it's so hard to, it's so hard to see it because you're wearing blinders. That's right. You're blind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so two questions. One is where do you think the blinders come from? And and two, if you feel comfortable talking about this, how does one take them off? You you mentioned, you know, going through some awful experiences certainly has a way of jolting us out of our current perspective damping down the power of the ego but short of facing that sort of tragedy do you think that is is there anything that people can do to realize that they're wearing blinders and and actually take them off i think the blinders come from the very human experience of being fearful i think it comes from a baseline of fear we are afraid of death. We're afraid of not being loved. We're afraid that we're not going to be successful, that we're not going to achieve something. There's this afraid of not being enough. And in order to boost our self-esteem, it goes back to the in-group, out-group dynamics that we were talking about earlier. We need to bolster ourselves up by putting these artificial layers of of accomplishment that make us feel better about ourselves. And so it's, you know, I'm going to act a little bit more confident than I actually am. And I'm going to make sure I brag about this accomplishment that I got. So people hear about how smart I am and I'm going to act a little bit, uh, you know, sweeter than I feel I am because maybe that'll make this person fall in love with me. So it's all about acting. It's about how we create these identities that cover up our real self in an effort to be loved when ultimately best way to get love, easiest way to get love is to be our true selves. But we're so afraid that we're not enough that we don't really buy into that. So that's where I think they come from. At least that's where it comes from for me. Yeah. And if I, if we can pause right there, I, I agree with you completely. I'm afraid of not being enough. And for me, it's been afraid of not belonging, you know, not belonging to that in-group that I'm supposed to be in and doing things to try to fit in. So following the path of of others in the same field as me, and doing the things that they say or that I think I should be doing as opposed to the things that I actually want to do. Exactly. Exactly. And so the how do you get over it? How do you know when you don't have blinders on anymore? The answer is you probably always will have blinders on. So just the answer is yes, you have blinders on. Ask the question. Yes, you have blinders on. I don't I, I can't fathom a person who doesn't have those blinders on, because even with this sense of realization I've had that I've had blinders on, I still have other blinders. You know, right. there's this never ending list of blinders that I've got on. And, you know, ultimately nirvana is when you don't have the blinders on anymore. But I don't know that that exists, you know, like ultimate enlightenment, I guess. Right. <laughs> At least how I've done it. 
in terms of just this beginning stages, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm at some higher level of consciousness right now because I'm not. I'm really at the beginning stages, but it's been in stillness in quiet, in silence, and really through meditation. And so mindfulness is the buzzword in corporate world right now. And there's a lot of trainings on how to be mindful and present and conscious. And that's all great. But for me, it's even simpler than that. It's simpler than being mindful. It's just about silencing. There's nothing that I have to do to get in touch with what is at the core of me? It's I have to stop doing. It's that I have to stop thinking. I have to stop worrying about most of the things. I think Mark Twain said something like, my life has been full of disasters, most of which have never happened, right? right. We're constantly worried about what's going to happen, what people thought about what did happen, what might happen next, what I need to prepare for in case this happens. And that's especially in the corporate world. I mean, that is the bread and butter of daily life. It's how do we, what strategy and action plan can we come up with to beat our competitors and to prevent this disaster from happening? And how are we going to innovate so that we can beat the market? And it's constantly worrying about things that don't necessarily even exist. And so for me personally, it's about stillness. And when I actually slow down and I actually stop talking and I sit in a chair and I don't do anything but close my eyes and sit there and quiet the mind, then I can start to get in touch with what's at my core, which, you know, for me, it feels like compassion. It feels like this kind of love that just radiates and is everywhere and is for everyone. And when you start to see that, and I don't want to say, keep saying you, when I start to see that, I start to realize how much everyone is caught up in that. And I start to, it becomes so easy to have compassion for everyone, even the people who you know, gave me the feedback that I needed to bake a little bit longer. She was saying that because she was coming from a place of feedback maybe she had been given. We're all so kind of broken and we all have our own blinders on to some extent that we're doing the best that we can. And when you, when you get in touch with that love, when I get in touch with that love, I can remember that like we're all just doing the best that we can. And like the best that I can do is just have love and compassion for people. And that's kind of the, what I'm working on right now. That's the best I can do right now. I think that's the perfect note to wrap up this conversation on. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'll admit that I've been guilty of unfairly labeling generations in the past, but your book just completely opened my eyes and made me realize, and it seems so obvious in hindsight, how inappropriate these labels might be. But your book opened my eyes and prompted me to to take action at the university level too, to make sure that we're not unfairly labeling generations, particularly when it comes to our students. So thank you so much for that. If people want to find out more about you and your work, where can they go online? jessicakriegel.com j-e-s-s-i-c-a-k-r-i-e-g-e-l.com all of my information is up there and you can join the mailing list and i'll send out information as things get updated excellent well i'll put all of that in the the show notes so the audience can sign up for your mailing list thank you so much again jessica great thanks so much it was a pleasure chatting with you Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, 
to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.